that clearly. Now, what David had in mind is a number of different issues which we came to understand last time. Namely, let's say, some, for example, how should we view the alienated Jew or the non-Orthodox Jew or the intermarried Jew? How should we view all these people, even the non-Jew? One could raise the question. How should we, how do we as Jews view the other, number one? And then we raise the question, if you exclude others from your truth, then of course is that ethical, is that moral? Is it right to exclude others from the great truth that you happen to have? That's sort of the, the, the vague way that David had defined his, his topic. It's an interesting topic because it revolves around one of the most important concepts of Judaism, namely the chosen people concept, which is one of the most embarrassing concepts, which is what David really hit upon in Judaism, because how dare we call ourselves chosen? How dare we say that, that we're better than somebody else? That might not have been so radical a thousand years ago, two thousand years ago, because it was viewed as normative for people to declare itself to be chosen. That's not a problem. But in modern America, for example, to be chosen is say that you're better than somebody else, but all men are created equal. So there's a conflict almost between the intuitive understanding that America ha an American has and the chosen people concept. But Jews have had this idea going back three thousand years ago to study some of the sources regarding these particular ideas. And interesting is that this idea has been the source, as Thorchkin's book has pointed out, of their persecution. Some people will say that they were persecuted for economic reasons, true enough, or for, let's say, uh, ethnic reasons could be, or for religious reasons. Catholic, Jew, is not going to mix, is going to be a persecution, it's going to be a problem. Or in the eastern part of the world, with the Islam, as well, Jews are going to be persecuted and going to be lambasted and going to be so trivialized that the chosen concept becomes silly almost. The eastern part of the world, especially what happened in the western part of the world as well, where the Jew was forced to wear a yellow star. Jew was forced to wear certain hats. Jews were forced to wear different kinds of shoes, different colored socks. That was more in Catholic, not both. Islam also? Mm -hmm. the, the, if I remember correctly, the, uh, yeah, the yellow badge was actually first in an Islam, 9th century pack of Omar II, 9th or 10th century, where the yellow badge had first been forced upon the Jews, but also the notion of a Jew was not supposed to ride a horse, supposed to a donkey. They built a synagogue higher than a, than a mosque. Everything was made to, to make the Jew feel lower than the average Muslim. Exactly the opposite. Chosen. You think you're chosen? This is how you're chosen. Chosen for persecution, chosen to show that you are inferior. So that was an important part of Islamic cultural, religious norms. But of course as well, the Western part of the world is the Jews also, not as blatantly, but the Jews also are certainly persecuted and made to feel lower, inferior than their host population. So the Jews were chosen for, in quotes, persecution. We discussed that particular issue. And yet, we also discussed how sprinkled throughout all of this persecution, you had those <coughs> non-Jews who had taken Jews, I don't want to think, don't look at me. No, no, thank you. Jews who had um, been seen by these people as something extraordinary. Going back 2,000 years, we had spoken about how Aristotle had viewed the Jews with great praise, at least as far as one of his students, Clerkus, had reported, that Aristotle met the Jew. I was greatly impressed by the Jew. 
And whereas we helped the teacher do something, we ended up learning from the Jew. Not surprising, because Aristotle's rarefied, abstract concept of God and morality clearly reflected a Jewish concept as well of God as an abstraction. God as that which is not physical. Aristotle's coming out of a pagan context of gods as physical beings, and all of a sudden... Hi. Is it white person? Yeah. Yeah. Do you like one now? No. Okay. Just wondering. Maybe you can. It's okay. It's nice. Yeah. Whatever. We're okay. We're okay. So. So Aristotle himself had viewed the Jews something special. And this may be apocryphal, not we're not really sure, but there is something to be said for how the ancient pagan viewed the Jews. But even if you go to a Hegel, one of the great minds of the twentieth of the nineteenth century, how he had viewed the Jews as well. But even as the girl? Yeah. Girl, come in. It wasn't open. They unlocked it three times. but as well for praise. Somebody, again, as extraordinary a mind as Aristotle's, all the way to Hegel's, all the way to the 20th century, where the chosen people concept became a very clear indication of anti-Semitism, where Arnold Toynbee was one of the premier historians of the 20th century who had mocked the Jew for his chosen people concept, and it's called the Jew a fossil. The Jew is a fossil religion, and it's talked about them as a fossil in his multi-volume work of world history. Arnold Toynbee, one of the famous uh, historians of the 20th century, not that famous, I guess. He <laughs> taste, but he's one of the famous historians of the 20th century, early 20th century. And yet, Maurice Samuels is the one who coined in response to that claim, how odd of God to choose the Jews, it's not so odd that Jews chose God, which is a sense. 
God didn't choose us because that was embarrassing, but rather we chose God. Now, if you wanted to study the Tanakh, we can look at that a little bit later, it does in fact seem that God chose Abraham as opposed to the reverse. Now, not everybody's comfortable with that idea because why would God all of a sudden choose Abraham? Why is that fair? What would you answer to that question? Just to take a bit of a tangent. With all due respect to you. Hmm? <laughs> tangent. Tangent? Tangent? I can't? Tangent ties? That's not here. Charlie's not here. Okay. As long as I don't get a force with Charlie. Let's be Charlie complaining bitterly about our tangents. Tangent. I know, I know. Ignore him, Mr. Layden. So the question over here is, how would you answer that claim? Well, we always learn as kids is that he was a good guy and he found God before us, but that's not fair. No, that's not fair. I'm sorry? I'm sorry? Is that what you're saying? The Torah says that God chose Abraham and God chose the Jews. So Jesus suggests over here quite correctly that we will create, or the Ba'alei Midrash. Welcome. This is really a pleasure. You came especially from? From, from Elbon Avenue. That was very nice. Are you now in the upper Bronx? No, That's not easy to do. Now, so the question is, how would you answer that claim? So the Midrash created a whole scenario where Abraham, in fact, had sought out God and creates... Now, why did the Midrash create something that's not in the text? To solve a problem. What was the problem? Exactly our problem. That in the, medieval, in the classical period of Greek thinking, the Jew was singled out as arrogant and how dare he claim to be superior. In fact, look at the Greeks, the Romans, all this. Okay. This part? Yes. Oh, for me? That's so nice. This is pumpkin cake, so it's quite good. It's Thank So, in the Greek world, the Jew was an object of concern. He had a certain kind of almost exclusive status from the Greek and Roman world. And all of a sudden, the Jew is making these claims. So the rabbis in the Midrash had a response saying, no, no, God didn't choose a Jew randomly, but rather the Jew chose God. How so Abraham at the age of three discovered God? And the question was raised, well, how did at the age of three discover God? That's, a, that's, a, that's absurd. And then there's another Midrash that says to the point uh, that Abraham was 48, he discovered God. Now, people will often see that as two distinct Midrashim, which often is the case, but no. The answer is that, yes, Abraham asked the right questions at the age of three, which all of our children have asked, who is Hashem, who is God? But if we use that term, who, what, natural curiosity, kids have that philosophical curiosity till the age of 12 or 13. But then they just stress down enough that we end up just, they just, we force feed them whatever they have to learn, and they lose that natural inclination of really wondering about the world, the universe, things like that. But there is a philosophical bent of mind for the child. The nature of man is to question, is to think, as Plato put it. So, Abraham questioned at three, continued to questioning until 48. In between, he was an iconoclast, which we said means literally icon breaker, smasher of idols. It uses the colloquial sense nowadays, which means somebody that goes against the grain, somebody that breaks the idols of the marketplace. But he did it both literally and metaphorically. Good, so the Midrashim were created that Abraham was seeking God and finally found God in a mature sense at the age of 48. And then he had his message clear. And by the age of 75, when the Torah begins to speak about the relationship, then God says to Abraham, you're right. You've chosen the right values. You're following the right. So Abraham then preached for, what, 27 years without really knowing if he's 
preaching the right message. That's the point that when it's true, you know that it's true. Which is of course a very important philosophical notion. And anything is true. But you feel in your gut. Abraham felt in his gut. He knew it was true. And God confirms that. And the rest is of course history. But all of this midrash is a almost a defense mechanism against the charge, how dare you say that God chose you. So the Midrash solves it that way. How else can we possibly solve this issue of God choosing the Jews? Is it right that God chose the Jews? So of course the pagan might say, Amos might say, big deal, if God chose me, I'd be a good person also. He didn't choose me, so what are you blaming me for? Can you use another Midrash to answer your question? Yeah, of course. You want to create one? No, no, there's one, the, the, the Midrash that says that God offered the Torah to all... Okay, but now you're going back a thousand days hence. But you're right. Good point. The same exact issue is raised. How dare you Jews say that God gave you the Torah and therefore you're chosen and so feeling self ennobled when in fact we didn't choose it didn't offer to us answer yeah we created but that says God went to all the Bedouin tribesmen Esav whoever it was and you want to that what they don't steal and I want to that don't do that you I want to that the rabbis took the data all the characteristics of those nations of the Arabs who, who were thieves and the Bnei Edom who were adulterers and whatever else it was you want it says that we don't want it that probably didn't really happen didn't really no. happen but the rabbis were trying to defend that statement. No. So the answer is that who said that Abraham was the only person that God had chosen? There might have been other people that God had chosen who didn't in fact accept having been chosen. And therefore, they were pushed to the wasting of, of history. And Abraham's the one that taught his children and others beside him preaching, teaching this set of words. Okay, this whole new philosophy of, of um, what Jews want. The Torah brings in Malkitzedek. Well, we don't know who he really was. Elion. Was he really a, a priest of, of Hashem, as the Midrash does? Or Elion is, was the name of a pagan deity. Of a pagan deity. Yes, of course. Documented? Yes, of course. Of the head of the Canaanite pantheon. was one of his names. Oh. There were multiple. Baal was one, and others were, there were others. Marduk of the Babylonians. And uh, Elion, Elion. Yes. Yeah. So he probably was simply... has it written down. Sorry? <laughs> he must have it. Yes, yeah, right there. So that is a mahtoken among biblical scholars as to whether he's really the Torah really mean that he was a servant of God, Hashem, or the of Elion, the head of the which is probably what it was. But the Midrash rewrote it. So you're saying Abraham was the one who was ultimately chosen because he was preached afterwards. Exactly, and taught his children and said, right. Maybe there was someone else who didn't preach because maybe there was someone else and they just didn't write absolutely. about it. Is yes. that another possibility? Yeah, absolutely. There is a, there is a framework, there is a, um, in, the, in the book of the Yorv, there is a statement which seems to indicate that there are men of wisdom who had this doctrine already prior to of God, of God and contemporary with Abraham pre-Eobites, men of great wisdom, and they also taught this, but they didn't pass it on to their children, or they didn't have a school or a following. So then, however one slices that, okay, please help yourselves. That was nice of me. No pun intended. What about, what about looking at Abraham as simply a literary device? Let's, we'll get, let's go, we'll get back to that in a few minutes. We'll come back in a few minutes. Let's finish this structure over here. Oh. But in the non-Jewish world... Oh, wait, 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 wait. I'm going to use the because then Abraham should have passed it on to him. Why did that happen? Good. So the answer to that would be is that Ishmael didn't take it on. But is that in the text that he doesn't take it on? He leaves. He leaves and just hangs out. Huh? 
no, well, and his mother doesn't teach him. Comes back once, leaves again, and then they just return back to Egypt. So they were not interested. And he comes back ultimately to bury Abraham with Isaac. Well, that's a they're not going to treat it so well. Yeah, we agree. We agree. Well, whatever the reason may be is that Ishmael at no point did he ever show an interest in it. Is what seems to be the prevailing message over here. I mean, it's does. Even in shot wise, yeah, shot. even from the text, correct. Now, what's interesting about that is that so that would. Chosenness has to come from being passed down. Or through adopting the ideology. It's either, it's a biology. It's a bio- biology or an ideology. You have either choice. If you, if you choose to, if you're a non Jew or a non Abrahamite, then, and you choose this ideology, all of you, they chose the ideology. But they didn't pass it on, so they're lost. Abraham must have had many people to whom he preached. Because he's always preaching God's word, God's name, whatever it was. And we have textual proof to that. That's Bereshit 18.19, which we know by heart. We should all know that by heart. Right, we'll review it again. But at this point, at least, it's, um, it's that famous statement where Abraham preached this to everybody. He was a wandering preacher, and he taught this. That's why he was chased out of Haran, perhaps. But all that's a different issue. Let's go back over here. So here we have Aristotle. Here we have Hegel. Here we have... The, can we really say that there were other people that, you know, were, uh, that might have accepted uh, the way this Abraham did? Well, I would, you see, I, I would think not, because because Abraham did, he was given promises. So if there were others, then I mean, they would have been given promises. And really, they weren't, because... No, clearly they were not not weren't. <laughs> Whatever you just said. No, because we don't know that. That, that history, history is not So they may have gone. They may have had the same promises. We have no record of it. We didn't write it. Because they didn't follow the covenant. In 1819, that famous. Year, like before the war, after the war? Yeah. Seven years after the war. Right. In 1819, that famous year of war or Pasuk. What does God say? Ki asher. I know this man Abraham. That he will command his followers and his children they will safeguard God's way to do just and righteousness in order for God to bring upon Abraham that which he promised him he must safeguard this pathway. 18-19. So that's clear. It's all conditional. Judaism is conditional. In order for God to bring upon Abraham that which He promised him, He must follow the covenant. Well, then why do we allow the biological part? But it, nowadays. The, problem, the, the people... He interrupted you just now, so... Those people that... Could you interrupt him? That, let's say, were the contemporaries of Abraham or with the, the, follow, the uh, succeeding generation. We don't have any information because what happens if you're not a follower of the covenant and you just push aside and we don't have no information about you. As we don't, for example, regarding Ishmael or Isaac. In other words, either you're in or you're out. If you're in... Sorry? You're written about. You're written about. Interestingly enough, this notion, which I think is really raising, which we're not really going to speak about later right now, is probably the most important prevailing philosophy of history that we subscribe to. We could call it a selective process. Jewish history is a selective process of those who safeguard the covenant and therefore are part of the covenant and part of Jewish history. Those who do not 
are pushed to the side. Interestingly enough, we have this king, Yerav Am Hashini, Yerav Am Ben Yashir, Yerav Am Hashini, who reigned from 785 to 745. One of the longest reigning kings. There are six verses about him, and we know more about him from the extra-biblical sources than what others pagans write about him than we know from the Bible. Why? Because he didn't follow the covenant. He was an evil person, and he only had one thing to his credit, which we won't talk about right now, and therefore he's not written about. We don't care about him. He's pushed to the side. He's irrelevant. So, so too, if a person chooses to deny the covenant, he's pushed to the side, he's out of the ballgame. He's not playing any longer. Just to make a point, that the, the Torah is only interested in the history that furthers its goals. Right. Which exactly is the same philosophy of history that Hegel wrote. Hegel wrote this extraordinary magisterial history of the world, showing how it, the world is in the process, evolutionarily speaking, of revealing itself, its guise, its spirit, further and further. And he tries to show how every generation, every age, is a furtherance of the revelation of the, he calls it divine, could be divine, but not the same way that we understand the word divine, of the spirit, spiritual aspect of the world that's revealed. Judaism was a step on that. Paganism was the first step. That was really a, a very minuscule revelation. And Judaism came along with a big push. And then with Christianity. And there's forms of Christianity. And ultimately, Protestantism, his form of Christianity, is the ultimate revelation and second coming of the revelation of God to the world. Sin and we're saying. So one interesting question would be, what would Hegel say today? He says the Jews were right. They were great for that period of time. And they're really extraordinary and really mesmerized because we had a, when it was quantum leap from paganism to Judaism. But then Christianity developed and then Christianity is the ultimate fulfillment of God's promises all along. But not the same God that we believe in. So my point over here is that Hegel said had his philosophy of history. We have a philosophy of history. Not the same God that we believe. Not, not well, Hegel's. It's not that oh, simple. Hegel's, Hegel's God. Hegel's God. Right. No, Hegel's God. Hegel's, God. Hegel's philosophical process. So again, let's back to this over here. So what we have over here is this appreciation and non-appreciation of who the Jews were. All the loving around this concept of the chosen people. Right? So we had seen over here how Aristotle spoke about it, Hegel spoke about it, Tony spoke about it. And then my next point that you recall was how various non-Jewish authors have spent their time speaking about the Jews, researching about the Jews, thinking about the Jews, caring about the Jews. And what comes to mind, of course, is James Mitchell's work, which he spoke about, the source, who had found the Jews an extraordinary people as a Christian and willing to spend ten years of his life researching the Jews as a Christian and coming up with a 942-page book going through every level of Jewish history and wondering how is it the case that the Jews are still around? It makes no sense. It's impossible. And yet we also quoted, then we quoted uh, Mark Twain's famous, that was in the 1960s, but in the 1890, 1898, Mark Twain's, I want to read it again, then we read it once. I don't know if we read it in this class. We've read it. So Mark Twain's over here, of course, and it's extraordinary that in 1898, Mark Twain has no intimate information of the Jews, writes his 30-page essay, published in Harper's Magazine, about the Jews. Now, why does he care about the Jews? And it's, when he writes it, I mean, it's worth reading again, to tell you the truth, but we won't do it. All things are mortal, but the Jew, all the forces of the past, but he remains. What is the secret of his immortality? The Jew was an object of curiosity, and to such a great degree where at points in medieval periods, pre-Twain of course, he was so powerful that it was viewed as almost either mystical or demonic. 
guilty of poisoning the wells and brought about the bubonic plague in 1346. Jews are guilty of that. Nothing to do with us, but you must have done it. And people were sometimes afraid of the Jew because he had his contact with the devil, the son of the devil, who was demonic. So with all of that, the chosen people of Christ has been a double-edged sword for us. But again, the pagan, the Christian, the Muslim, the secularist, Toynbee, Twain, and James Mishner all found the Jew to be an object of fascination. But then, and there, we spoke about uh, Ernest von der Haag in the 70s wrote The Jewish Mystique. It's a book that you must have read in college. Are the Jews smarter? What do the Jews have to offer the world? He's a social anthropologist. It's a great book to read. Just, it's, a, it's an extraordinary commentary that the non-Jewish world felt appropriate to read, to write about the Jews. And then in the 90s, even just two weeks ago, we have the book, uh, two months ago or so, The Gifts of the Jews, Our Tribe of Desert Nomads Changed the Way Everyone Thinks and Feels. Sorry? Thomas Cahill. Which is amazing. Here we have a book. A non, again, a non-Jewish person, Thomas Cahill, who's an Irishman, can write this book, The Gifts of the Jews, How a Tribe of Desert Nomads Changed the Way Everyone Thinks and Feels. To make that statement is astounding that we, the Jewish people, change the way everyone thinks and feels, and yet he's right. That's the amazing part about it. His simple insight, which is no great shakes, is that if you look at the moral code of the Jews, or spiritual code of the Jews, they're constant of God, that's the Judeo-Christian tradition. The, even what I've been fond of saying, he doesn't get the whole story because he knows nothing about Judaism, but even the notion, the Western concept of progress or utopia, it's the idea of Mashiach, it's the idea of that we don't view, view, we don't view history any longer as the pagan did as cyclical. And why the pagan view history as cyclical? Because... Did the moon and the sun. Good. Their social model was the natural model. The natural model is that winter follows fall, spring follows winter, summer follows spring, and fall follows summer. And that goes on again and again and again as the sun rises and sets. So there's a cyclical model of nature. Nature is obviously cyclical. So the pagan viewed history also as cyclical. You're born a slave, you die a slave. Who has the right? You can't change that. That's the fate of and destiny of the human being. Whatever you are, you are. And along comes the Jews over here. And this is an underappreciated point that you have an exodus from Egypt in the 13th century before the Common Era. All of a sudden, the slave says, I am supposed to be free. I'm going to break the norms of what I should have been, which was a slave. It's the first time in the history of the world that a slave breaks the bonds and goes free. It's extraordinary. Underappreciated. The first time in history, you have a Moses. Then her celebrated 2,000 years later, or 1,000 years later, or 14 years later. But Moses was earlier, and yet it's underappreciated. Ironically, those of you who read these kinds of works, the Exodus story is the classic liberation narrative used by the Latin American countries now, the last 20 years. The Rastafarians sing about it. It's amazing. I have a CD. And Why? Why do I have a CD? I like that. I like what does uh, it sound like? reggae music. What's he, reggae music? He proclaims that the, that they left. The What's reggae music again? Jamaican. 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 Oh, right. Yeah. And they and they, you know, the Rastas are the guys that marijuana is part of their religion, and they have the dreadlocks. 
Rastafarians. With the big hats and the hairs on the Oh, you don't live in the scary. city, that's why you don't see those guys. You don't scary. Don't scary. 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 But they they have they have some kind of connection. Bob Marley and those guys. They make some kind How of connection. How big are they? How many are they? There's about twelve of them. <laughs> but they have a lot of guns. But they have a lot of guns. They have a lot of guns. <laughs> they do, they do. The Jamaican army cannot go near them. They want to go in the mountains and raid the marijuana field and they can't. Wow. So you're talking about in Jamaica? In Jamaica, yeah. Have wow. on. Next time go to Jamaica, I'll visit. It's free trade industry. Free trade industry. Free trade industry. Okay, so in that case, you're saying that they use the Exodus narrative yeah, as their... Yeah, for them, you know, to... I guess they're making some kind of connection. Right. About their own Are they slaves of... Uh, I don't know what... You know, they see right. themselves yeah, as such. I can't imagine. Maybe on the course, right? On the class. So, but in, in Latin American countries, this is the... That will be good. Get the tape and we'll play it. Yeah. Okay. Play Background the music to the class. To the class. So that... The Exodus is a, is a liberation text. It's viewed as we want to liberate ourselves. So, again, the non-Jewish... Authors Twain and Michener and Vanderhag and Thomas Kell do in fact celebrate the chosenness and distinctiveness of the Jewish people. They all want to know what is the secret of the Jew. His Michener answer was, as we said last time, Shemayi Sheshem those six words proclaiming the oneness, uniqueness, aloneness of Hashem, of God, is the secret of the Jew. Thomas um, Mark Twain ends up over here, what is the secret of his immortality? And again, he goes through this whole thing. It's an extraordinarily well-written paragraph, really capturing all of that. But the whole essay should be read. The whole essay is a very, very powerful essay as to who the Jews are, at least from the perspective of a southerner down south, but limited exposure. But he says this is amazing. They are chosen. <clears throat> so these non-Jews had a fascination with Jewish history, with the Jew and they kept asking this question how is he still here? And again, we were privileged that in the last half century of the 20th century we see the Jews resurrect again we have the state of Israel Holocaust survivors, 47 1948, 100 million Arabs surrounding them, declare war 3, 4, 5 times, and they're still around flourishing with a multi-billion dollar uh, economy, with multi-billion uh, industries that explore the rest of the world. It's amazing. With, despite all their problems, despite all the nonsense that they go through, despite all of the garbage that they spew forth, with the Netanyahu's and everything else, they still are an extraordinary people. Who else could do this? Take a Holocaust survivors of a couple of thousand people and with an indigenous population that was extraordinarily poor and ransacked to do what? To proclaim a state and to defend it itself and did it time to time to time. Was it miraculous? However one can understand it, it's extraordinary. So you have all of these, these events which again point to the Jewish people as someone special. <clears throat> Berkowitz's book, God, Man, and History, makes a very big point of this, a very major saying, and raising the question, yeah, we're embarrassed to raise, we can't raise this question, we can't ask this question, are we really special? We're embarrassed to ask that question. But his last half of his book, God, Man, and History, talks about is Jewish people as Am Olam, as the eternal people that really do have something unique. Now, we want to try to explore this chosen people concept through some biblical sources and other in the hope of somehow getting a sense of chosen for what, what does all that mean, in order to then come to David's point, chosenness implies exclusion. 
And how do we deal with exclusion? How do we deal with the alienated Jew, non-Orthodox Jew, the intermarried Jew? Is what you your basic focus was. Good. Well, I have another question. In addition, why would the system be set up in a way that the non-Jew should be excluded? It's not. He can, he's included if he converts. If he adopts our ideology, he's part of the Jewish people. Yeah. Not only part, he becomes one of the Jewish people. He becomes... Well, okay, I'm just questioning right biological issues because the non-Jew was completely immoral and unethical and still calls himself a Jew. Well, so the non- he's immoral. Who? The, the Jew's biological Jew. Biological Jew who's right. immoral and unethical but still claims he's a Jew according to you from previous days. He's still a Jew because... Up to a certain point. Up to a certain point. Correct. Because he's biologically a Jew. Up to three generations of, non-Jew, of non-Jewishness. By the fourth generation of non-Jewishness, he loses right. his Jewishness. He becomes a non-Jew. Right. So that's what... And thus we convert to Judaism if he chooses to be a Jew again. That's a right. halachic decree that can Yeah, that's Rabbi Soloveitchik and Rufenstein's statement. Yeah. Oh, but that's not from the Yomar? The Rabbi Shem no. said that's from the Yomar no. generation. No, no. He showed Jews, Gavan Yivamot, Yud Zayin, which talks about, this is their interpretation of that, and uh-huh. which talks about, Banim, Pasuk and Hosea, Banim Zayim Yiladu Lahim, that they were... Um, Alien children were given birth to, where the grandfathers didn't recognize the grandsons in Hosea. So when you become so paganized, God says you're no longer part and parcel of the Jewish people, you are alienated from me. So you lost Kedushat Yisrael, therefore you need to be reconverted if you want to be a Jew without a Benachah. So it's, it's, it's Zion talks about it, but what we saw later in was that a few generations, etc., when the grandfather no recognizes the grandson. That's what he gets it Yeah, so you're right. Generally, our principle is though a person may in fact transgress, he's always a Jew. That only goes first generation, second generation, to the third generation happens, and the grandparent can now recognize the grandson. The grandparent who is Jewish can no longer recognize the grandson as Jewish. As Jewish. They're alien children, they're not my children, they're not my grandchildren. They're intimate and not avowing themselves to be a Jew in any form whatsoever. Now we're not including the obviously Reformed Jews. Reformed Jews are very much Jews. So with the 40% of American Jewry who no, I mean when they call them on the telephone for the CPJ CJP. CJP, they ask them do you see yourself as a Jew at all? No. And they say no. Now, it's odd because I don't know if we, some of you may, business people may, but certainly we Normal people have no awareness of that Jew. Everybody we come in contact with, by and large, in some sense, is Jewish. Okay, but you must, as business people, I'm sure you come in contact with Jews that are not Jewish. The only I don't really see it, but I see it. But I saw on Channel 13 a show where a guy was Baltish Shabbat from Iran, and he got married, and his friends came to the wedding, and his friends were Jewish guys. Uh-huh. And I saw this guy talking, it was like mind-boggling. Which guy? The, the Baal Shuvah? No, the guy who was not the friend. The friend. Right. He was Jewish, but right. didn't practice unaffiliated. Right, right, right. He was like, we are not powerful. No, he was powerful. What is he I'll doing? What? No, why is I'll my friend thing. doing this? What's he doing it for? What, is it? what does he need this for? No, but it's not. Believe that I feel like he was. Because he's, he's removed. He's removed. He, he's removed. But that doesn't mean 
that he doesn't he doesn't have a different no. aspect of which he feels his Jewishness. No, this guy was and, not. And you wouldn't necessarily discredit him. I don't know. I, I don't know. It could be right. It could be right. I'm not making a judgment. I'm just telling you. I, I know you're not, but uh, but I do know that there's a large section of the Jewish community that feels very strong in the Jewishness and very anti-religion. In, 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 in anti-religion. Anti-religion. Yeah, that's the whole soul. Be very unemotional, correct, correct. That's right. They wouldn't be care. either way, you know, and that would be proof of, of how little they felt in terms of right. That's right. You have um, this 40% of 2.5 million Jews have no emotion, no connection, no feeling towards it. And it's interesting because now that I think about it, we do a lot of weddings in the shul of these non Jewish Jews, a lot of them because of the place. And they, you know, it's interesting because, I mean, even, I think I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, also that Sam Mayer's son married a girl who had absolutely no connection, no concern, no involvement, will not give a kosher home, does not care if her children intermarry, is what she said. I mean, I, when I speak to them before they get married, I raise all these questions. I didn't raise the issue of McVeigh, don't worry. That, was, so that, one, that one can go over big in Pretoria, that one for sure not. But um, every, even a kosher home, not, absolutely no interest. Do you care for kids into marriage? No. When you have no... She was Jewish. Yeah. And she had no connecting link. It meant nothing to her. Just And, and cold and unemotional, as I'm saying it right now. Yet yeah, I have some relatives who are not kosher, who are not religious, who go to the Seder because their families are involved. Can they go to Seder? I say to them, but many kids may come up to you and say, I'm going to marry no Jew, and can't really be accepted. I'm getting incensed by my country. Wow. Yes. That's that's serious. That's kind of incensed. How dare you think that? Of course, I want everybody. My daughter, I do. I happened to be last week. So, I insulted a very dear, like old time friend slash family member, and she said, "How dare you think that I'm wow. the?" And I said, "Well, my concern, right?" So what, what did you say then? How did you respond to that? I, I said, look, the, the numbers prove that, that if you go that way, that those are the kids that are lost. You know, that Big time. It. And I see it. They have no education, home. no duties, no anything. Yeah, I, I worked with a woman it's who amazing. said to me, who's not, who's not religious, she said to me, you know, I think I'm going to put my child in a Jewish day school. And I said, why is that? And she said, because my family grew up, you know, Zionistic, Democratic, liberal, <laughs> this and that, you know, very, you know, Jewish. And we sit at the same table and the next boys, you know, Jews wow. and she says, well, where did that get us? Nowhere. She said, so maybe I'm going to wow. send my kids to do this. How old are you this? So she has children that are that young? She, yeah, she's not late and she's Welcome. Welcome, welcome. Hi, Joyce. Come on in. Come on in. Good to see you. Welcome, welcome. We're half over. Yeah. We have started. Not half over. Half started. You have to be an optimist. I am, I am. Good to see you. When did you come in? When did you come in? Oh, welcome. Bienvenido, como se dicen? Bravo, quiero español. Yo quiero conducir la clase en español. ¿Puede? Puede. Quiero enseñar en español. You want to learn, right? Enseñar, teach. It's oh, you want to teach? In español, it's más mejor así. Oh, you're going to teach this class? Oh, Aziz. <laughs> <laughs> he won't slow down. understand it better now. Okay, so Eileen's point of thought... How do you say Hegelianism in Spanish? 
where the hell ended? So when, when you have, Eileen's point is well taken, that there is some residual Jewishness in many people, that's true. On the other hand, again, we have 100,000 Jews in cults, 100,000 Jews kids don't care about it. And that the family statistic is told that more kids, there are more kids now under the age of 18 who were raised in another religion than there are Jewish kids under the age of 18. There are more kids under the age of 18 who are born Jewish and raised in another religion than there are Jewish kids under the age of 18. In America or in the world? They're born Jewish. Jewish mother. Right. Right. Jewish mother. Jewish mother. Right. That's the result of marriage. In America. That's not the world. America. And that's all a reflection of, again, people who simply do not care. People are not involved, not caring. That's what it is. So, interesting is that we come to this now, which I think we ended up last time, is that Jews are not all that concerned about being chosen at all. They do not see themselves as unique or distinctive. In fact, had spent a lot of energy and time trying to be non-Jewish, assimilated, part of the world. We didn't want to be distinctive about who we were. So that 40% of American Jews, which is 40% of 6 million, which is 2.5 million Jews, have no connecting link. 100,000 Jewish kids in cults, and all of these other statistics are frightening. Given the intermarriage rate, given, remember that in 1965 it was 9% intermarriage rate, and now it's 51 or 52% intermarriage rate. It seems to me that you're seeing much more of like both ends. You're seeing many more of these people who are moving away, and on the other end you're seeing many more the Jews who are becoming more committed. Even if it's not necessarily from orthodoxy, you see that many of the conservative and reform who are taking on more traditions and more you know, things that we have heard of what they're doing there. You have a parallel polarizing movement. Exactly. It's like the middle that's being missed, but the two ends are really... The question is, it's down this side. That's what it seems to be like. That seems to be. In other words, even, you have 1.8 million reformed Jews, 1.2 million conservative Jews, and 400,000 Orthodox Jews, 500,000 in America. Given those statistics, one should be depressed. Because remember that 125 years ago, you had 98% Orthodox and 4% Conservative or Reform. So in 120, 130, 140 years, the whole thing is that we're on a slide. And yet, you're right, that there is a reawakening of interest. The question is, what does that mean? An interesting, most uh, interesting study is where the um, fascinating, the, the uh, Avi Chai Foundation did a study in Israel. Israel has been 15% Orthodox and 85% Heloni secular. That's the way it was always portrayed. Is that a higher ratio than the numbers you gave in America? Yeah. Yeah, but 15% Heloni, most of the, many of the Heloni, if you ask them, what kind of Jew they are, they're very Orthodox. Yes or no? Mm-hmm. Not exactly. Well, let me just go through the steps. Okay. So then there was a reaction to this, these numbers, and the reaction was very strong, in that most of the Hellenim are saying, no, we're not Orthodox, but we're traditional. We're traditional. So it turns out, there are only 35% anti-religious Jews, 50% traditional, we go to a Seder, we buy Hanukkah candles, Christmas Yom Kippur, that's it, go to the beach on Efti Shom Yom Kippur, with my steak sandwich, and glass of milk, and then I will have to have the milk, the riches. <laughs> so the, then after that, they, um, they claim they're traditional. 
which is why the conservative from whom cannot get a stand in Israel because it's 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 alien to them. They don't like it. They don't like it. It's else. We're traditional. We're orthodox traditional, which means we're not religious, typically Syrian in many ways. The Syrian guy that does all that, the non So all of that is interesting. So you have 50% right. 50% traditional, 35% anti. There's a great article in the Jerusalem report this past week. I was a guy named Tommy Lapid, who's a super anti-hateful of the right wing. And he's right. Because they milk off the economy, they get all these systems, they steal millions from the government, and yet they don't serve in the army, hate the government, hate the state, we don't want to be here, but give us everything. I mean, the guy's right when you read the stuff. I, I find I'm very sympathetic to him. But 35%, and 50%, 50% orthodox. Good, that's more or less the numbers. Then a Jewish observer, which is the right wing Agudah publication, came out and says, You know something, let's be honest about this. If a guy says, I go to a Seder, you're counting him as a traditional Jew. He goes to a Seder, has a, you don't have to be, he has to be just to love Levi's Jewish wife, has a rye bread sandwich. Sorry? And it's New Year's party. It's traditional, but it's not Judaism. So Jewish observer says, You have to be honest about this. That when you say a Jewish traditional, there's all kinds of traditional Jews. If a guy's going to go to a beach on Yom Kippur, he has to go to shoes. I go to shoes on Yom Kippur. What's your problem? But you drive to the beach afterward. That's my problem. So you're calling him as traditional Jew? That's not traditional Jew. This is a strong conservative Jew is traditional Jew. But these Israeli traditional Jews are not real. They're traditional in mindset, in their attitudes, but not in their practice. So you want to count them as traditional Jews? You should not. Because one generation from now, they're going to be assimilated and they're not any longer going to be viewed as Jewish. Or better, because in Israel they'll still be in the name of Why are you supposed to do it? Wait, 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 wait. Now, where do we see this? We have this interesting person. There's a guy three years here. His name was uh, Peleg. He was the um, uh, government Israeli official at Fort Monmouth. He was doing something for Monmouth, government related, military related. He said for three years. I invited him five times to Shul, never came to Shul once. He loved the right drive. One Dwight drive. Two, two minute walk. Never came once. I don't believe in Shul, I don't go to synagogues. Two weeks before he was going back to Israel, he said, I want to meet with you. Okay. And I want to have a class with you. Okay. Okay. We had five Israelis. We spoke only people the whole time. It was a really exciting night. And we played a tape of one of the famous Israeli authors, I think it was A.B. Yoshua, one of the Nobel Prize for Literature, about the Galut mentality, us. And second, Israel, we don't have that mentality. We're Jewish by virtue of just living in Israel. I don't need anything else. And so that's what they said. That is a, a secular Jew. He agreed 100%. And, you know, and he said, your kids, he tells me, your kids are not really Jewish. You live in Israel. And so your kids don't know what kosher means. Why are they Jewish? Because they're going to be going back to Israel now. But they're going to marry Jewish. But, but that's, that's Eileen's point from before, when you came late, which is, these are Jews that are in frame Jewish, but soulless. They're not living Judaism. So, they have no Jewish soul. They're not concerned about anything Jewish. They're cultural Jews, perhaps. They will study Tanakh as a cultural document, having no sensitivity whatsoever. In what sense are they Jews? Okay. But do they now, give now the world something anyway? Wait, 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 wait. wait, wait. We'll go back to David's point now. How do we view them? They are going to be, and another point that we made prior to you having come. <laughs> Easy, leave them alone. Here's the paper, that's coming away. Why should we leave them alone? The study of Tanakh amongst even the secular Jews is a very strong point. But is that good or bad? 
it becomes a secular document. So you read the Code of Hammurabi, you read the, you read the But Kishimor. is it really a secular document? To even them when it they is. read it. No, yes. I don't. I, uh, is it? I that's, question if it is. That's what you're talking about. It's, it's, it depends which ones. The tradition. Read it, you know, uh, to them it has much greater importance than, than whatever. Cultural. Cultural importance. Okay. But why is that important to me? Uh, I study with these people. When I was getting my degree, the PhD degree, you have dozens of guys doing this. You have a Christian guy, you have an Islamic guy studying Bible academically. Right? Good. How painful do you think it is? And, and of course, we're all like, so we're wearing because they're not wearing it. They're reading, we're reading. We're reading, we're wearing because they're not wearing yarmulkes. And every time they say Shem Hashem, you cringe. To them, and it falls on the floor, you pick it up, it'll make a difference to them. So I cringed a lot to the extent that I, just, I, I was shamed of who I was. Now, who do I want to associate more with? Who do I feel more comfortable with? With the non religious Jew getting his PhD in, in Jewish history? Or with the guy getting his PhD in Tanakh? Who has no connect, no connection at all to it? Is it Christians or is it Jews? No, the Jews. Jews we're, all, we're all sitting together. Right. So I had no. I was. I felt more comfortable with other disciplines, philosophy, history, whatever it was, than the Tanakh person. I couldn't deal with a guy. Friends of mine studying Tanakh without a yarmulke, reading without a yarmulke. It was of no value to them. This is of ultimate value to me. So now, how do I view that person? But it's almost as bad as... They're not disrespectful. They don't know. They don't know. They don't know. No, no, no. They know. Why are they saying... They're not going to get out of this. Because the boy would put a yarmulke. Well, exactly. If he has to, he might. Sometimes. Yes, that's true. That's true. It's deep respect for it, but it's different. It's not holy. It's not... It's academic respect. Right. But it's not what it is to me. And I'm not, you know, I'm not a narrow-minded right wing fanatic across the, ra- across the tracks. You know, I'm fairly broad-minded of these things, and I can deal with these people on every level, but when it comes to... But it holds itself on, on academically. It holds itself on academically. That's what we're talking about now, though. No, what does it mean to them? Is it better that they wouldn't be study it? Yes, it's interrupted. You're in the class yourself. He has a right to say it. I'm in the class myself. What do you mean I'm in the class myself? You're taking the class for the academic level of it. Yes. Yeah. So obviously there's something that... that For me. For you, but also for them. For them, I don't know if that's what it. I don't know what it is for them. You're coming in with a, with a different mindset, of course. But I'm saying, okay. how do I deal with that Jew? Could it be he's 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 with, with the non-Jew. No, with the Jew, 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 Jew who has de-sanctified, right? Was de-sanctified that which is sanct, which is holy. Would it be better if he didn't study? You can't, you can't you can't deal with him. You can't deal with him. It's a different plane. It's a different perspective. Okay. The Jew who is not aware or not knowledgeable, who studied Jewish history, has a greater sense of sanctity than the Jew studying Tanakh without any awareness. I mean, he knows. They went to day school, but it just lost it. So my only point is, is it better? I don't know what's better. This Jew sees it so secularly better than what? If he would, would he not? I I still think he's getting more out of reading it than if he would never read it. If he became a... The question is what's going to happen after the fact. He's going to get his PhD. Yes, there's several of people who have considered it sanctified. No. Mainly the latter. But it's not the awareness. I could deal with a Jew who's turned away. 
It's just that they spend 18 hours a day. When you're on a PhD program, spending 18 hours a day, whatever you're doing, whatever field it is, and they spend 18 hours a day with this book, and to them it means nothing other than it means academic. It other than academic, to God. academic you, interest. But it doesn't connect to God. But it so means something. It's brilliant for them still. That's another question. It's another question. Right now. Let me just this point. So what I'm saying over here is that that's what you're dealing with when you deal with the Hiloni Yisraeli. Now, he, this, my friends are going to get a PhD in Bob Zabar and teach it in some university. Is that good or is that bad? Bad. I, I, I don't, I'm not happy about it. He's going to teach more of this de-sanctified biblical teachings. It has no, no meaning to them other than academic interest. So, I don't know. Really 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 Right, 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 right. He doesn't have the base. Right, that's what happened. That's exactly what we're talking about. And they criticize. That's not realistic. So you can't study Shakespeare unless you have a base in uh, medieval uh, English uh, literature? I don't understand. You could learn, you could go to a class. No, no. You still have to have a respect for the material if it's something that's personal to you. You have to. When you went to those classes, those Bible study classes that were academic classes, you had to dissociate to some degree. Why? I never associate. Of course you did. Yeah, because when we spoke about uh, documentary hypothesis, you didn't discuss that documentary hypothesis? But it was a question, no, I, I had a discussion. Did you sit there and defend it? Did you defend it against it? To the extent that I thought it was appropriate, yeah, of course. But not dogmatically. But not on a Jewish I level. I was interested. I'm interested. No, I have no problems because I'm interested in truth. So if it's true, I accept it. Because it's true, I cannot be against truth. And if it's false, then I have okay. to accept it. So you have the option to prove it. Exactly. Exactly. So somebody could take a college course and go in. It, children who go to college are not prone to looking at things objectively. They're skewed already. All right. But that, that's, but that's the point. That's the point. I had a background, so I could press. And, I have, and also, this is a graduate level course. And this is undergraduate. Undergraduate kids have no ability to answer the professor. Too bad. Well, you suffer for that. Don't teach it. No, don't teach anything. No, prepare him. Prepare him. right. Prepare him. Not don't teach it. It's the college's job to teach it. Those kids think that they're not prepared for the Lubavitch were there. And I think they should have been there and been aware of it. They couldn't deal with it either. They couldn't deal with it either. Answer the questions. Lubavitch doesn't have the answer. Lubavitch doesn't have answers to questions. That's the problem. Lubavitch doesn't have the answers. Lubavitch doesn't. No, no, that's not true either. If you... You have to know how to approach the subject matter. In other words, one could approach a text from a certain perspective. There might be equally valid other perspectives that you could approach a text with. And if you have the other perspective, it might be a, a religious perspective, it might be a non, but they, might be, they should be of equal, presented as equally valid. Not balanced. They're not balanced. These presidents don't present balanced use of it. Vicky Beta, who went to Penn, 
had the same problem on, on a biblical level. Took a course with um, gay and she was thrown, blown out of the water. She went to Yeshiva, right? Vicky Bay, Teddy's daughter. Oh. Once, so she so she called me up, whatever. So she had to write a paper. She wrote a paper of the conflict she was now experiencing. Where's the start? Not, not having. Yeah, where is it? Because Rabbi Kawa brings down Rambam. What Rambam says to the guy, what he answers the guy. He not, says the same thing. It's not relevant thing. right now. But it is, it is. It, it answers the point. <laughs> where is it? I don't know. I'll find it later for you. But it's in there. I'm telling you. I, know, it's, I read it. I read it. So my point is that she now wrote a paper on the tension of an orthodox young woman coming out of a yeshiva background who all of a sudden is thrown to this open-minded college academic course that now is blown out of the water. What do I do now? Is the way she ends the paper. Did she not have enough preparation? Of course she had enough preparation. So we, she had or she didn't? Did not, of course not. Hillel should be doing more? You can't do more. You can't do more. Your teachers don't have to do that. But she'll become stronger. Maybe yes, maybe no. Because she spoke to him, not if she didn't speak. Maybe yes, maybe no. We don't know that. To, to, to criticize, you're prepared to accept. And not when they come and they say, you know, looks like the, 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 the genesis was not written by right. one person, by two people. You're not prepared. Like this. I'm not prepared for this kind of an answer. I had to look it up. I had to right. Look right. But if your kid is going to go to college, it's very likely. 20 years ago, they tried to prepare. They may not have done a good job, but they tried to say you're going to be exposed even the, to that. Even the rabbis are not prepared to answer the questions. Right. Because the rabbis want to train that way. Really not. I agree with you. The rabbis are not trained. Very few rabbis have. So then these kids have to be prepared. You can't prepare them. Someone's going to criticize, and you have to know how to defend and what the answer. You're right, but it's impossible because the rabbis themselves are not trained to do that. Very few are. You need a PhD to do that. To know the arguments, the counter arguments, have discussed it. Very few rabbis are really prepared for that. So let's go back to this. Okay, so now we're talking about the chosen people concept. We spoke about the chosenness which led to persecutions and attacks and pogroms throughout the 2,000 years of diaspora living. The Holocaust is only one manifestation of that, but there was, during the Middle Ages, of course, you had the Inquisition, you had the Crusades, but even prior to that, in the 6th century in Spain, the Jews were also uh, persecuted by, his name was uh, King uh, Success, I think the 6th, or something to that effect. But prior to that as well, the Romans and the Greeks had this ambivalent attitude towards the Jew. On the one hand, he was persecuted. On the other hand, he was raised above and viewed as noble, as Aristotle did, and others. So all that we covered. But now we want to go back to our biblical sources. We want to try to figure out biblically exactly what does chosenness mean. So we go back to a point that we hinted at before with David. To Abraham, 1800 before the common era, Abraham is chosen. That is in... Yeah, that we have a... You know, we need a regular? Yeah, this, this, yeah this is good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that should have it. I mean, there must be more over there. There's two over there. That what are we doing? Where are we going? Lechlecha. We look at the Pashat Lechlecha. Everybody have? Three books. That's it? That's... This is the second book. But I, I have it. We're good, we're good. Okay, okay, remember. We're okay, we're okay. I mean, knows it by heart. Two? Three? Three? We have another one here, no? No, that's uh, volume two. That's from uh, Kings On or something. Like I know. Isaiah. Here's volume one. Volume one, there you go. Okay, now here we have the opening line. This is something that, again, we had just hinted at before. 
on page 45, Bereshit, Perek Yudbet, all of a sudden, out of the... Sorry? On page 45, sure. Which Perek Yudbet. 14. Yudbet 12. Ooh, Gina, go back to school. It's late. We haven't begun to fight yet. Yudbet, Yudbet, one. One? Uno, uno, uno. One. Yudbet, uno. Very good. Delicious. Pumpkin. Delicious. Very good. Pumpkin. One. Oh, that's the guy you mean. Someone else? So Abraham. You mean the person that starts with Bayomet? That's it. Thank you. I got it. So Abraham is chosen. Now the question of course is that something is missing over here. What is missing over here? What do we want to know that is not written over here? Why are you chosen? Why is he chosen? Very good. Doesn't say. Does not say. All we have is the command of God to Abraham. Go forth. We may look to the parasha before that, parasha Noah. Abraham is mentioned over here, linked with God. If we look at chapter 11, verse 26, what do we have? This man called Terah, the father of Abraham, was born. He's 70 years old. Has Abraham, Nahor, and Haran, three sons. Okay. Now this is the history of Terah. Terah gave birth to Abraham, to Nahor, and Haran, three sons. Haran had a son called Lot. So Abraham's nephew is Lot. Why tell me that anticipatorily? Because Lot's going to play a role later on. Which is, so, which is a fabulous technique. Proof. No, but it's a proof also that Torah only tells you what it needs to tell you. Yeah, exactly. Good. Be other correct, children. correct, good. Now Haran dies early while his father's still alive in the land of his birth in Ur of Kastim, which is a city in Halab. City near Halab, city in Syria. Ur, Ur of Kastim. Good. Abraham and Nahor get married. Then Abraham's wife is Sarai. And then Nahor's wife is Milkah. Milkah is the daughter of Haran. So Nahor married his niece. Right? Haran was the father of Milkah and the father of Yiska. Good. Sarai is barren. Is that important to me? Of course. All this is going to lead into what's going to happen next. Sarai is barren. No child. Now Terah takes Abraham his son and Lot his grandson. And Sarai, his daughter-in-law, wife of him, his son. And they all leave Ud of Kazdiz to go to the land of Canaan. They come to Haran, another city in Syria. They stay there. We're not told why Terah decided to leave. The Madras... Now, Ur Kastim, as well as Hanan, were shrines to the moon goddess, from what we know archaeologically. Who do you refer to specifically? Who? Which? Okay. The moon goddess? No. Oh, they were shrines. They were cults. They count shrines? Cult cities. Yeah. They were cult cities. No, no. That, that's, ziggurats is Babylonia. That's Babylonia. I mean, how do they know that they were... We're talking about Syria. They found the big, they, big they found. of cheese. They found the big ball of cheese in the moon. Okay. So now Terah is now Terah is now 205 years old. Now it's interesting. Terah dies in Haran, right? Now we know Abraham. Just try to find out. Abraham is 75 years old when God speaks to him. So how old was Terah when God spoke to Abraham? 140, 145. He dies at 205. So for 60 years, he's alive. Abraham left him. Is that right? Hmm? Yeah. Right. 145 to minus 205. Right. So he's 60 years. Terah stays there. Abraham is told to move on. 
We're not told why. Now you have the prehistory in Parashat Noah. You have the facts over here. We're not told at all why Abraham is chosen. Again, as we pointed out before, Gina pointed out that Abraham is chosen because he chose God. He chose God, and here God says to Abraham, now that you have my ideology, my philosophy, now that you know what I want of mankind, go forth and leave it all behind. Because Abraham, if in fact you want to have a world impact, if there's a great world, notice the Pasuk 3, I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. And all of the families of the earth shall be blessed through you, or shall acknowledge you. Now, astoundingly enough, that really happened. Right now you have 800 million Christians and 1 billion Muslims, which is 1.8 billion people out of the 5.2 billion people in the world, who acknowledge Abraham as their spiritual progenitor. That's amazing. Besides, usually the 400,000 Jews that we have, or the 14 million Jews, depending on Orthodox or conservative reform, whatever we're going to talk about. So, Abraham did, in fact, become the father of multiples of nations. Now, interesting enough also is that this is, this is pre-covenant. There's no covenant over here. And what we have to point out is that chosenness ultimately is the result of the covenant that takes place by the end of the parasha. Right now, there's not a... We want to define what is covenant, what does it really mean. But at this point, there's no covenant. Good. Abraham goes. Yeah. The pshat, still reading a pshat... It's God chose him. Exactly. It wasn't that he chose God. There's nothing here that says he chose God. Exactly. Well, we know that he chose God because he goes forth. But we're not told why he was chosen. We know what that he chose he God because he goes, goes forth. Goes and he goes. goes. You mean he listens when he God listened. said go. Yeah. Exactly. And so he listened. And a boy professor in a class where I didn't have an answer for him said, all of a sudden Abraham is chosen and there are no witnesses to prove it. But we have witnesses. But but we have witnesses, hundred years or a thousand or five hundred years later. Later, but at that moment, we have chosen. But we that's correct. But at Har Sinai, Har Sinai, you have your six hundred thousand Jews who bear witness to this event, and on some level, in second, on some level, in some fashion, and. It's true that anything in the book of Bereshit is not binding upon us. The three mitzvot that are in the book of Bereshit, namely Milah, Piriyav Rebiyah, and Milah Rebiyah, and Gidhan Asher, the Sayyarak Nervatit, is not binding upon us because they received a private revelation. It's binding upon us because of Har Sinai, which is a public revelation. Oh, so what is private? This is private, and the rest is public. But okay, be that as it may. So Abraham goes as he was told to do so, and his nephew goes with him. Abraham is 75 years old when he leaves Haran. Right? He leaves his father behind. 60 years. Is there any contact between father and son? 60 years. Not that we're aware of. Rashi in this pasuk over there brings it down as criticism of Abraham. Why did Abraham, who went ahead to try to teach the world, then teach his own father this issue? Interesting question. But Abraham makes this complete break. That in of itself is, is a very strong. It's a phone. I'm sorry. I can't, sorry. I don't know if there was anything to say. There was any. There wasn't an attempt. We don't know. We're not told of it. Doesn't matter. The point is that there's forward movement. Right. He leaves behind, cuts all ties. His birthplace, his home, he leaves everything behind to establish something new. Now, it's, again, interesting, was that necessary? Is, it, is the Torah telling us something over here about chosenness, that in order to impact, you have to first leave behind those 
roots that you had established, that you absorbed, why is the Torah given in the desert? It's the same question. Hmm. You, in order to establish something new, you have to absorb it in a, in a almost a neutral environment. Let's leave this alone for a minute, because Abraham then establishes a family. Coming back to that point that here we have a dual bipolar rationale for being a Jew. Dual, namely, biology and ideology. Sometimes these converge. Sometimes, as you pointed out, they remain separate. The non-practicing Jew, who's biologically Jew, has no connection, no concern, no involvement. He's still Jewish for three generations. The ideological Jew, who has no biology and converts because of his ideology, he's fully a Jew to the extent which we say irrationally, you could say that Abraham was your forefather. But Abraham wasn't my forefather. Now you could say that. You could make a prayer and pronounce, Abraham is your forefather. How could I say that? Because your spiritual history has been changed. Once you convert, you retroactively convert, so to speak. Because Abraham is just an idea. Because Abraham is okay. was not a Jew himself. Yeah. No, but he had an ideology. Yeah, but so you you now share his identity. You become your ideological no, father. You're, you're his ideological father. He would be a perfect choice, not Yitzhak or anyone else. Oh, good. Okay. So he's, your, he's the only one that's not biological. Right. So he's, a, he's your ideological forefather. And we also view that as more important than the biological. And we let you assert that Abraham was your father. Ideological slash biological. I don't understand why we're not out there converting. And maybe that's a separate question that comes later. But we will come later, right now, because that will come later on as we go to that. Yeah, I'm sorry, John? No. Okay, so here we have it. Now let's just, for a moment, look at Gina's favorite pasuk, Bereshit 18.19. This explains the rationale. If you were to ask me, this is explains the rationale. Here we have this very striking context, wherein God's about to destroy Sodom Amora, and for the right reason, of course, and God now says to himself in verse 17, Shall I hide from Abraham that which I am going to do? Abraham will be a great nation, powerful, and all nations of the earth shall be blessed through him. So if I'm going to destroy an entire people of Sodom Amorah, right, down south by the um, Jordan Valley, all the way down south, near the Negev, right, you know where it is, I have to tell Abraham this. Shall I hide from him? If Abraham is going to be a world-shaking personality, he has to understand and know my rules of operation, which is evil is punished absolutely. If you're absolutely evil, you'll be absolutely destroyed. That's my MO, God says. I, I have to tell Abraham this. Abraham has to know this. And then he goes in Pesach 19, I know this with Abraham, that he shall command his children and his household after him, and they shall safeguard Derech Hashem. What does it mean to be a Jew? To safeguard the pathway of God. What is the pathway of God? Justice and righteousness. That's the whole story. To be a just, righteous person is what God wants. In order that I bring on Abraham that which I promised him. So this whole thing is conditional at this point. That in order for Abraham to be blessed and everything else, he must safeguard God's pathway, which is justice and righteousness. Abraham discovered that principle, that what God must want is just righteousness. In other words, is this a supernatural revelation? No. Why not? Which is what leads me to say that this happened prior to 75 years old. Because it makes sense to say that on a rational basis, that if I have a wonderful crop, 
I have loads of extra corn, and you're starving. Should I give to you? Well, on a pragmatic basis, on a utilitarian basis, if I don't give to you, and you have your three kids starving to death, what's going to be the next step you're going to take? You're going to steal. You're going to steal. You have no choice but to do that, and who would hold you responsible? I have loads of food that I can't even use. So it's just to give to you. It's right to give to you, for all, if only for selfish reasons. But now, let's say I have the army. Should I give to you? Well, what happens ultimately if all the people that did not grow die out because they starve to death? Then what do I end up having? I miss, I, I, I'm missing my context, my social humanistic context. So I need you around. I want you around. I should share with you. With the same flesh and blood, with neighbors, we were friends to you, demonstrated laziness and didn't plant your field properly, or maybe it wasn't your fault. But in any which case, it's righteous for me to share with you. So now, what I'm getting at over here, that if you look at secular philosophers, from Kant to Bentham to Mill, they would say the same thing, either utilitarianly or just doing what's right. It's a Kant's whole philosophy based on what's called deontological theory of ethics, which means doing your duty. It's your obligation. Where does it come from? From within. It's natural law to share with another. A mother shares with a child, so you share with somebody else. You're the same species. So the net result is Abraham discovered that it's just and it's righteous. Because if I don't, then what happens? Pragmatically, it's not going to be good for me. But even on humane grounds, if you die out, then what do I have left? So I have all this wealth and all this food, but then what happens? I have nobody to share it with. So he's, the secular philosophers see Abraham as a very natural person, that not everybody may have this natural inclination, but it's not and contrary to nature. How natural is it if not everybody has because it takes a certain set of it takes a certain set of variables for that which is natural to be brought out, one would say. Okay, I just want to take two more minutes of your time. So this is the opening lines. Now this story we're going to end right over here, but there's a greater involvement. We didn't go through systematically. One should, but there are different stages of this chosenness, and each one is a different trial. In other words, here God challenges Abraham. I'm going to destroy this whole entire people. Okay. What do you think? So Abraham says, I don't, I'm not happy with it. It's not justice. I believe in justice, God. You are supposedly a God of justice, right? Abraham says, How can you, God, who's the judge of all, the, ju the judge, the just judge of the whole entire earth, not do justice? This is not just. But why is it not just, Abraham? They are evil. They deserve to be killed. No, but God, you don't understand. There's maybe a couple of righteous people over here. So you can't kill the righteous and the non-righteous. That wouldn't be just. We all agree that's common sense and logic. He's guilty. Wipe him out. She's not guilty. Let her live. How are you guys going to destroy both of them? David, we understand. Who wants them? But wasn't even stronger than that? I mean, his, his argument was not that you were, you were going to kill the right and save the righteous and kill the non-righteous. He was saying because of the right to save everybody. Right. Abraham has a twofold argument. The first level is Ha'af Tispeh Sadiqim Rasha, Rasha, which is common sense morality. Ha'af Tispeh, will you destroy the evil and the righteous one? 
You want to sit next week? What chance is next week? Should I sit next week? I like this. Okay. You know what I'm saying? I like this. <laughs> I love this guy. I love this guy. <laughs> this side, my reputation precedes me, and they're all ready for me. I just can't wait to have I need another tooth pulled. I'm going to pay back. Yeah. Okay. Pay back for this. Yours. Last time it was my daughter has she has not take three wisdom teeth pulled. So she actually said it was wonderful. I had a great experience. It was great. No problem. No pain. No anything. It was, it was great. So you have to say that. It was, no, I don't have to say that. It was wonderful. It was a, a, a fun experience. <laughs> Tip of the blood that <laughs> kept streaming out. I was laughing. I don't know. I was laughing. <laughs> it was a lot of fun. Okay, so that's the first argument. But then there's a subtlety in the argument. Where then Abraham says, "I want you. We don't want to take them to follow it all. But say if there are 40 righteous people, save the whole city. What's he saying? That the righteous can atone for the non-righteous. They can affect. They can impact. They can teach them the right way." So God says, maybe so, but guess what? There's not 40 righteous. What about 30? What about 20? What about 10? Now they understand how why stop at 10? Because if there's not 10, <coughs> not that there's nine, it's not gonna work. It's not 10, they ain't one. It's not right. Abram got the point. That there's not 40, 30, 30, there's nobody. And it's an important lesson for us that a culture can breed evil. An entire culture can become so absorbed with evil that it becomes the, the epitome and embodiment of evil for which there's no hope. Because there's no longer any outside standard. The Nazis will say that our standards are good. Civil law, which we had in fact promulgated, is that Jews can put to death. It's part of our law. You put people to death. Well, you have your criteria, we have our criteria. Your criteria is if a man kills, we put him to death. Why could if a man is born Jewish, I put him to death? Who said yours is better than mine? He's still both killing. I'm sorry? He's still both killing. He's still both killing. You put rats to death, we put Jews to death. What's the difference? In fact, the Jew is worse than the rat because the Jew does the rat doesn't cheat you, the Jew cheats you. Who wants Jews in this society? Do you want Jews in your society in America? No, we don't want them either. So what are you yelling at us for? We got rid of our problem. We solved the Jewish problem. So the Nazi made that claim. And it was hard to argue against it. How was they argue against it? It's a crime against humanity. It was an invention of the, of the Nuremberg trials. That there's a natural law that you can't just go ahead and kill anybody you want. Natural law says that. Where's natural law? What is natural law? St. Thomas Aquinas spoke about natural law. We may speak about natural law. But it was not a legal category to the Nuremberg trials. Natural means you can't go out and kill, so we, and you did. So therefore, you're Hayah, we can hang you. Who you got that from? You hang me for natural law? Where does natural law come from? So, Abraham in this case is arguing <clears throat> two things. A, don't kill the righteous with the evil. That's not just. Mishpat. And what's righteousness? What's more than justice? Is that give them a chance to repent. I grant you, God, they're evil. And justice demands that you kill evil people. But what does righteousness demand? Give them a chance. He cheated on his test. Give him another chance. That's what righteousness is. So God says, yes, you're right that righteous should play a role, but I'm God. After all, I know in this case that we have to teach a lesson to the world that there can be a society of total evil, absolute evil, evil writ large, that we have to destroy. Amen. That's part of what you are as a person. You can't allow evil to go rampantly unchecked. And how do we express that in our terms? Amalek. Amalek is the embodiment of evil, and Jews, be prepared when Amalek rears its ugly head, be prepared to go to war. We're not pacifists. We destroy evil. Part of the Jewish mission of the world is to destroy evil. That's what we have to do. It's Amalek in whatever form it appears. So that's part of being chosen. And then there's another one. Saving is definitely. There's another. Each one of these are further trials, tests, 
issues wherein Abraham has to respond appropriately and positively. And if he doesn't, Liman Habiel Abraham, which you read at the very beginning, in order for God to confront Abraham, that which he promised him, you have to follow and pass all these tests. Ultimately, Abraham does. And Abraham is secure. He gets the covenant. What one has to think about is a covenant of chosenness. What we want to do is try to figure out what that really means. So we'll end now and just think about covenant till next week. What does the Bidit really mean, number one? And two, then we're going to go to Shemot to see the second and next development of this covenant from family to people. Bidashit is about family. Shemot is about peoplehood. It's two different thrusts, two different issues completely. And how does the peoplehood of Shemot differ from the family orientation of the book of Bereshit. Next week. Beer, Shabbos? Right. Or Brooklyn? No, no, we should be. God willing. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Bye.